Optimism vaccine. My name is not Steve Cuff. Uh, he's not here today, so you get uh, no fun sound bites, uh, no fun at all, really. Uh, we're buttoning this motherfucker up. Uh, I'm Adam Myros. I'm here occasionally. I have not taken part in this illustrious series of Sukimoto films, but uh, I am pinch hitting this evening. And uh, joining me. Uh, I don't know. Steve would probably say something about him being a, a smooth brain, no friend though. But we don't do that here. He's <laughs> a, esteemed, esteemed correspondent from Chicago, Jack Eason. <laughs> I'm just going to appreciate the civility, Adam. Thank you. Well, th- this is a very serious, uh, you know, yes, endeavor. This is what we do now. This is- <laughs> take a moment to appreciate just not having Steve Cough here. It's wonderful. We can have a finally we can have an illustrious. Wonderful highbrow discussion about art. Precisely, precisely. Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> uh, joining us from the great city of Detroit, we have Sean Glennis. Hello, it's um, it's good to be back for another installment of Sukamoto Sunday. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, these are a bunch of feel-good films. I, I'm just... Uh, I'm happy I, I jumped in at this time. I, I was just feeling a little too good about myself here in the pandemic, so uh, this I, helped. Yeah, I, I wonder, uh, you should watch Kotoko sometime, Myros. I wonder how you would, I mean, not when you're like feeling especially down, but <laughs> that, that seems like something that, that you might uh, jive with. Arguably, this might be the most upbeat group we have, so... <laughs> bear that in mind as you go well that that is saying something because well there are many good things to be said about these films uh upbeat is is not the word that comes to mind uh let's move along to our west coast man uh jake tropila thank you for having me adam oh always a pleasure always a pleasure uh anything exciting going on in your life jake um (sighs) no did you say Jake or Jack? Oh, I said Jake. I don't care yeah. about those other two guys. <laughs> uh, well, no, my answer would be the same, too. The heat wave <laughs> has uh, finally hit Los Angeles, and as somebody who had to run a bunch of errands today, it was not fun. So that's what I have going on. I'm glad I could uh, cool off with these Tsukamotos. Uh, well, that'll do the job. That'll do the job. Uh, let's get right into it. We, uh, we are finishing off this series on Tsukamoto. Uh, I believe the genesis of this project is a fancy new Blu-ray box set. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if all of these are included. I would guess they probably are, with perhaps the exception of Killing. Uh, no, they the are. Recent film. Gemini. They're all included. They're Gemini Excellent. is the only Excellent. one that we've covered that isn't. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, we will go with uh bullet ballet this is a a film that i had previously seen and and it kind of helped to along with tetsu establish my opinion of uh which i don't know at the time probably wasn't the most positive i I, to me he he's a guy who kind of fits in with that uh western filmmakers of the uh, similar era with 
kind of that uh, music video vibe almost. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, he's very stylized in this era of his filmmaking. It's it's. I never really went beyond to see what he progressed into, which is kind of been an interesting adventure. But uh, this film is very much uh, in the vein of some sort of Al Jorgensen music video. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, well, who wants to get going on Bullet Ballet? I'll just say that, um, you know, we've been kind of jumping around through these episodes. We haven't gone chronological, um, which at first I was, I, I think Steve might have designed that for mood or something, but um, I, it was kind of nice this episode to have these three because they kind of um, give us a nice taste of uh, different eras and, and uh, variations on a, on a style. But this is obviously the the earliest one that we're going to be talking about today. And it, it, it has still some holdovers from the early stuff, the, the, um, you know, the Tetsuo stuff and Tokyo Fest and whatnot, but, um, you see him opening up a, a bit more. Jack, did you call this like a transitional film for him? Yeah, this, um, this, I've seen this film many years ago and it kind of, it, felt much more transitional to me this time to watch it in terms of that it, it does seem like the the kind of dividing point between Tetsuo, Tetsuo 2 and uh, Tokyo Fist as like his early stage. This is a lot of the same aesthetic overlap with those, the fast cutting, the kind of grinding industrial music and so on, but opens up into something maybe hopeful that isn't particularly prevalent in his earlier work. Um, I, I don't like this. This is an interesting one. This is almost kind of like a, a film that kind of it's less supernatural, less uh, eccentric, I think, than his other films. And it kind of it maybe dictates or kind of portrays a certain maturity that would then move on to to his next films. His later films would become more um, experimental. He'd break for Gemini, which we've discussed previously, um, and then he'd come in with Snake of June, and he would start stretching his legs a lot more kind of into these more focused stylistic projects so yeah um this this one holds up really well i think and it kind of it comes to me as kind of like his his teenage angst movie almost but strangely considering that the main character tsukamoto casts himself as a, again a kind of a white collar he actually casts himself as a marketing uh executive or a marketing guy which is a job tsukamoto had in real life prior to becoming a filmmaker um it's, kind, it's of, kind of a film. It has kind of a you were talking about the angst thing, and it kind of has like a riff on um, to, uh, Taxi Driver or something. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it definitely it has that kind of Taxi Driver element to it. I know Taxi Driver Tsukamoto would consider one of his favorite films, and um, but it kind of at the end of it, it's kind of a film about moving on past things. I feel like I, in watching the film, there was kind of this vein of hopefulness in it that's somewhat unusual in his previous films that are kind of about people destroying themselves uh you know kind of really losing their battle against the the urban alienation and this one kind of suggests a way forward but it's it's a way kind of a a putting away of certain things um almost like putting away childish things and becoming an adult um Kind of it just uh, an unusual kind of a, a film, and as as abrasive as some of the stylistic elements in this film, we could still be certainly if you were to compare it to many other filmmakers, compared to Tokyo Fist and Tetsuo, this is uh, much easier going, much more plain sailing. 
Oh yeah, so I you you mentioned this is kind of like his his teenage angst film. Um, if you didn't know any better, you could almost uh, surmise that this is like his. This feels very much like a, a directorial debut film. That might just be the the gritty, uh, lo-fi handheld aesthetic. Um, you know, the black and white cinematography and uh, Taxi Driver is certainly a a, a potent touchpoint. But I think um, I was reminded actually of uh, Leos Carax's first film, uh, Boy Meets Girl which is also very similar in how it's these two self-destructive souls, a man and a woman who meet and um, are, there is a, it's, it's very grim, but there's also this, this, um, this feeling of, of uh, hopefulness that uh, permeates throughout it. But uh, also like both films, there's a, there's a nice little layer of uh, black humor, which, um, which I think is very, uh, very interesting. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I find it interesting. Again, uh, jumping in late, I, I saw th this film wears a lot of influences on his sleeves. It, you could see some Antonioni, I feel like. Uh, again, a lot of Scorsese. Chunking Express. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, but yeah, it is It is a very dynamic film. I'll say that. I, I'm kind of surprised by some of the reaction here because I know Jack has said he's come to prefer it more now than he did when he was younger and to me this this reads like a, a very young man's sort of film like it's i i guess i missed that element of hope in it and i do appreciate this film quite a bit I, but it it read as a very nihilistic tome to me yeah i don't know i mean i i guess i i take that the the uh, hopeful element in that essentially only two people make it out of the entire film pretty much alive but the two people who make it out are the two that have begun to consider what they're doing with their lives i mean we have this salary man who's who's a significant other girlfriend has committed suicide with a with a gun which drives him to this kind of compulsive thing he wants to own a gun he wants to possess that he's this kind of fascination with owning a gun he's being beaten up by these kind of street punk something gang. we can all relate to <laughs> yeah totally so he's getting beaten up by this street punk gang and he kind of becomes infatuated with this girl who hangs kind of with the gang and we kind of come to know all of the gang members as not really you know kind of low level you know thugs or like miscreants but it's kind of just disaffected youth and there's kind of a generational warfare at play here which comes in later on because uh there's a side character, a boxer, who was murdered by the gang in kind of one of these gang tussles, and his father, who is, I can kind of clarify, as kind of a World War II veteran, comes to the fore and essentially wages a one-man war against the gang. But it's kind of a almost a feeling of, of an older Japan eating its young and being very unsympathetic and uncaring. Something I mean, and this this was made in '98, I believe, which I think is around the same year. Maybe the no Battle Royale was like 2001, but uh. I think I have that right, but you know, kind of, there, there's this certain tone in Japanese cinema at this time that was kind of a, a generational battle that was unfolding. So yeah, you know, I think I think there's a way out. They they the two characters run at the end, and they they're running in opposite directions. And I, you know, I guess there's an ambiguity there, but I feel that there's something of a a a, a new consciousness has emerged that he kind of like. I mean, if nothing else, the main character I think starts to realize that his gun ownership is not the solution to any of his problems. Um, and I would I would say also maybe the gun ownership at some points maybe came to me as something of kind of like a, a imperialist element uh you know what's more what's more american than a gun um like japan is not a gun centric culture so it was almost kind of like a generational conflict but also a kind of a, a state of 
Japanese culture within, you know, kind of intruding elements, media culture. He's going online to try to work out how to circumvent rules and laws to get his firearm, etc. Um, you know, I, I think there's just a, a certain kind of sense of the film being a lot of pressures and confusion and misplaced angst and anxiety, and that maybe in the end of the film, they realize that something has to change. Um, and two of them make it out alive. The, the other street thugs who, who really are committed to their lifestyle all end up dead. Uh, and that, you know, feels somewhat telling to me that they they couldn't change it. They couldn't figure it. There's certainly a fatalism in here. I mean, it's it's still a very pulpy kind of treatment of the subject. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I kind of, I see, the, I would agree. I think it is a young man's film, but I think what's really great about Tsukamoto, or what's maybe Tsukamoto really gels with me, is that I feel like the energy he brings through those films transfers. Like Tetsuo is just a chaotic mess in so many ways but it, like there's you know as a, a punk aesthetic it just it enlivens me to watch it i feel excited seeing it and there's kind of an element of that to bullet ballet as well you know it's kind of maybe it's a young man's film but it kind of makes you feel a little younger too it makes you kind of you know appreciate kind of the ragged edges and the chaos and the choices and the no regrets kind of conception of you know where we could go um yeah it's, it's kind of it's it's interesting just to kind of live in this film and like i say i just feel like this film is much better rounded than tokyo fist um which i think is still an under discussed film to some degree um that bullet ballet just feels like a little bit more of a you know it almost reminds me a little bit of like kids sure. return the Takeshi Kitano film which i think came out two years prior to this which is also about kind of two youths going in separate directions one into petty crime one into boxing and training and discipline um, and kind of examining how those two roads can interlink and trip, you know, you can trip yourself up on either of them. <clears throat> so, yeah, as I say, I, I think as Tsukamoto goes, I see more hope here than in some of his other works, even ones we'll discuss today. It, it is interesting to me because both of the characters you discuss as survivors are boldly uh, suicidal throughout the film, perhaps uh I would say that the the my read was that the main character was almost seeking this uh, younger woman as a uh, sort of surrogate daughter. There's a lot of dialogue in the film about their choices to not have children with this his deceased uh, fiance, and uh, how they needed that to justify living in this world and to to remain tethered. And uh, you kind of feel that sort of untethered nature throughout this film that that chaos is is everywhere and he seems to be almost unwittingly clinging to this this young prostitute and uh it is it's an interesting dynamic to be sure but it, it to me it uh, i don't know i i i, I will uh, take your interpretation of the ray of hope and, and cling to it because it seems uh seems like a, a great choice that puts a smile on my <laughs> did face you, did you mention um Antonioni, because of the way he he puts them in this metropolis or the way he shoots this city around them. Yeah, the city especially uh, is, is what came to mind, something like Laclis. Yeah, um, yeah. It reminded me of that to an extent quite a bit. Yeah, I think, and we've talked about uh, how much Tokyo plays a part in his films and uh, feeling alienated by this city with uh so many tall buildings and it's always raining like all the time it seems like um or at least at like uh, a lot of key emotional moments 
Uh, and I think this one is shot like I, I, I just really love the way he um, opens this one up to the city. I mean, we get some some uh, they go to the theme park or whatever uh, roller coaster. And there's like some really great shots where he was, you know, sitting a couple of seats up in the in the roller coaster. That's so great. But the way that he shoots the Metropolis in this one um, really, really uh, struck a nerve with me. Yeah, it's a starkly uh, beautiful film in his way, for sure. Yeah, I think he slows down just yeah. enough in this film to mm-hmm. kind of really... It, it takes on a different aesthetic weight. I mean, I think... I'd say you could, you could make an argument Tsukamoto is maybe one of the greatest cinematographers in contemporary Japanese cinema. The way that the quality that he gets with so little resources is pretty phenomenal. And I mean, all these films... Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to this have all been shot on 16 millimeter um, except I guess Gemini would be well actually no he would make Gemini after this the next year so I think everything prior to this was shot on either 8 millimeter for his student films and 16 millimeter um, so he's working with a really kind of lo-fi setup and I mean he does everything and it's just kind of like there, there's uh, like personally I think there's a, a lot to admire in the, the kind of quick shot rapid rapidity of his earlier works but um here he just kind of like dials it back just enough to kind of find a new resonance in the images. And like you say, Sean, I mean this, yeah, the way he shoots the the city here, the kind of framing and composition of shots, some of the things, I mean, the, the shot where he's, there's a bullet hole in his bathroom window mm-hmm. from the bullet that his, his, his girlfriend shot herself with. And at one point he just kind of holds up some crumpled up papers and the wind comes through and just blows them away. And it's like these really evocative images there's one where he's lying on his back in his like hallway of his home kind of braced against the the kind of walls and the hot thing just holding his gun just like reveling in it with this kind of like sweat on his body it's it's just this really you know kind of and it's like this feral image amidst domesticity there's these just really evocative amazing kind of conceptual images throughout this film and yeah it's kind of like i feel like you could almost freeze frame anywhere and just kind of print the screen and mm-hmm. it would look pretty good yeah i'm a fan of the the finger pointing at the uh, the bullet hole too is a great shot mm-hmm. um but uh yeah this is very much uh, in line of uh tokyo fist and that it's a it's a guy who's basically a loser um and he wants to kill himself but there's these it's it's sort of like a, a little these sequences where it's a comedy of errors of him just trying to get a working gun. Like the first is he pays two and a half million yen for a, a like a squirt gun filled with a sand, um, and he gets ripped off. And uh, then he makes his own gun, which stems back to his his own metal fetishizing that dates back to Tetsuo. And he he creates this weird looking gun that looks kind of like an eight millimeter camera that doesn't work. Um, but uh yeah it's a very good film yeah and one thing this this film brings in as well is a kind of a street level aesthetic of japan like there's actually this is this is the first film he's made about japan with other people in it really um tetsuo and tetsuo 2 are completely single-minded on their immediate characters it's like the one shot that we joked about when we were talking about that he the child's abduction in a record store where they didn't tell the extras that that was what was going to happen but that's like one of the rare shots in one of his earlier films where there's actually other people around and here there's lots of shots of bustling Tokyo, crowds of people, and not just Japanese people, but, you know, African-Americans, Brazilian, Japanese, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, Tokyo as an actual multicultural 
thriving, bustling, sweaty place that people actually live and interact with. Um, and it's my understanding, I mean, the, um, it looks very, you know, kind of like cinema verite. He shot it on the slide, but apparently he didn't. Apparently, like a lot of these people are filmmakers, the, you know, the people in the background are all extras. He actually did stage these shots. Hmm. Um, but it's a really impressive effect. I mean, and it's, it, I guess it's one of the reasons this feels maybe like more of a, you know, not necessarily a more mature work, but I say a transitional work. And this is a feeling if he's starting to see... No, you know, the, the, he's starting to see a society, a larger viewpoint. He's kind of widening the lens out at this point to kind of see different groups of people beyond his own immediate obsessions with kind of urban alienation and the, the city as kind of sterile and kind of oppressive. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting work. I wouldn't have thought that this was... Uh, I would have thought that this was after Snake of June, um, honestly. It comes... A few years beforehand. I would agree. But, uh, yeah, that one just feels so, like, cloistered and, um, like, you, like, it kind of fits that description that you just said, which is just, you know, it focuses in on these obsessions, whereas this one is a bit more broad. That is probably about all we need to say on that. What I would say is, as someone who's coming in on the third episode and something I'm sure you guys have discussed previously, but we may have listeners who, like me, are late to the Tsukamoto party uh is his sound usage like the the sound editing and mixing in this is just yeah. very interesting and surreal and it it lends the, the entire thing a totally different feel because it does not use naturalistic sound and the way it, it conveys the sort of power of the weapon like just when he fires a gun it's like a fucking bomb has gone off in the frame it's just immense booming noise and cacophony and panic and it's just very interesting there's a couple of like uh, he does, you were talking about music video textures and one of them is that like rhythm that he does a couple times with the gun and it, it is like an industrial music video, like a beat starts, um, which is interesting. And I don't know if we saw it quite like that before in his work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, I actually only recently learned and we'll, we'll move on to vital late in pretty soon, but, uh, I, I only recently learned vital is actually the first film Tsukamoto made other than Hiroku the Goblin which was a studio film but it's the first film he made with actual direct sound oh, wow. even Gemini was Gemini <laughs> was totally post-dubbed so and I, I mean it's understandable with 16 millimeter and particularly with films like Tetsuo that you know it's it makes a lot of sense that he would post-dub everything because he's running probably very quickly and you know mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of background noise because he doesn't have closed sets etc but um yeah uh, you know that that's kind of like a an efficiency kind of step you would take in the earlier films but then if you're doing post-dub sound on gemini that's that's a creative choice that's yeah. absolutely something he's decided to do and bullet ballet has fully post-dub sound as well so yeah the sound design is very intricate very kind of upfront aggressive and of course like everything else is i'm pretty sure done exclusively by shinya tsukamoto mm -hmm. i don't think anyone else has touched it whatsoever yeah, the crew listing is just him like his name like eight times <laughs> uh well let's with that move on to vital because uh, i think this one merits a lot of discussion it's a much more mm -hmm. subdued film uh but it is a pretty special one, I think. I, this is kind of more... Uh, he gets away from the, the sort of industrial vibe that I, I generally associate him with, but he, he is definitely still kind of in that uh, 
This feels very David Cronenberg adjacent. It's a very interesting oh, psychological yeah. profile. Uh, and it's not so much body horror, but it's very uh, interested in biology. Uh, so let's get into it. Yeah, I don't understand. Like, And this is, um, you know, Sukumoto is one of the films that I, or filmmakers that I think I first was drawn to when I was kind of started to watch film, quote unquote, seriously in the early 2000s. You know, Tsukamoto is one of the first guys I kind of latched on to. And so I caught Vital pretty soon after it came out. And it was always kind of, it's it's a film that kind of, I would absolutely list as one of my absolute favorite films in the 2000s. It was, you know, a really special film to me. And I, for whatever reason, have not got around to revisiting it. I watched it several times in that, you know, in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s. Having come back to it in over 10 years really holds up. And it, it's kind of one of those things that it's, it's mysterious to me that this film isn't discussed more it seems not slow cinema tetsuo or sukumoto doesn't do slow cinema i think you know he slows down certainly but um this has this kind of yeah a kind of very compared to his previous work this is absolutely still it's Mm -hmm. it's glacial yeah i I was noticing that like even though uh i i love this this one but i was noticing that even though they're each like 84 minutes or whatever, like this one felt like the longest. And I was just like, wow, really? I still got 30 minutes left? This is, I think, the only independent film, the only Shinya Tsukamoto film that he didn't make Ah. with studio that was shot on 35mm. And I do wonder if maybe 35mm slowed him down because it's more expensive, the cameras are bigger. I'm just wondering if maybe he wasn't able to do... And it was a short... I know this is a much shorter shooting schedule. Uh, Tatanabu Asano is our, our lead actor who was, if if anyone, if you watch Japanese films of the early 2000s, you'll find Asano showing up everywhere. He was in everything. He was like the most in-demand young actor in mm. Japanese cinema of that era. So I don't, I think they only had him for six or seven weeks, you know, whereas Tsukamoto routinely, I think like, um, you know, uh, Tokyo Fist, I think was like a, no, it didn't shoot for two years, but it was a two-year production. I think he shot for six months at least um, because he worked completely independently, so he works in his own time frame. So Tsukamoto films are known for really protracted development schedules and shooting schedules. So uh, strangely enough, this film is probably maybe his quickest production to date hmm. other than maybe Gemini and, and Hiroku. So it's, again, really interesting that it is such a slower, more contemplative film <laughs> considering that probably on set Sugimoto is working faster than he's ever worked before I, I imagine the the editing is also the editing process was probably um a much different experience because uh well, well to sort of explain what this movie is for listeners um this is uh Sugimoto's memento um no it, it, this guy uh <laughs> don't be mean he uh <laughs> loses his memory after an accident um that he was in with his girlfriend and she died. And so he, yeah, he doesn't have his memory and he's sort of like picking up the pieces and is, he's with his parents and they're kind of helping whatever. And, um, but he's in medical school and he is working on, uh, this body. Uh, what's the word for it? Cadaver. Cadaver. And it is his former partner who passed away. And, uh, so it's kind of like going back and forth or, it's going from like his present into either the past or imagined past or sort of this um 
this these other experiences um i don't know maybe some of them didn't happen or it didn't happen exactly that way but um it's it reminded me like Myros, you you said cronenberg and we talked about him in other episodes too or his relationship to cronenberg and i definitely see that as well but it also was more his most like tarkovskian film like the way that um the textures of the landscape play in like these like mossy textures really really come in and are involved with this idea of memories and trying to uh make sense of loss and that type of that type of thing so it's very it feels yeah i guess the best way to describe it is just contemplative but yeah yeah it struck me um tsukamoto talking about the film said that he you know, and would really kind of contextualize the film, kind of a really good summation of how I feel about this film. He said that he noticed that when you look at pictures of the sky or the galaxy, you know, of space, and you look at photos taken under a microscope of like micro, you know, whatever, microscopic organism stuff, there's a, a similarity. They look the same. And he started to realize, you know, this kind of, depending on scale, the macro and the micro uh, become uniform almost or, or certainly similar. Um, and that kind of guided him towards this film that's about venturing inward into a cadaver. And it's, you know, and I really under stress that this, it seems extremely grisly that this film centers on dissection of a corpse. But, it, I you know, I think it's an incredibly touching kind of like vulnerable film about kind of about what it is to be alive and what it means to be to exist you know kind of that existential question of where we where the soul lies effectively and it doesn't lie in the the cadaver but there's something there you know um and that's kind of where he's he's delving into that's interesting what you say about the the textures or or whatever the microscope because of the way that stuff plays in like actual textures plays into the perspective of the main character you know like looking at the the, the patterns on the doors uh, match up on the elevators and, and stuff on the walls and just the way that the rain yeah. is silhouetted on the on the walls like so beautifully. Yeah, and it's kind of like, um, you know, the films just puts me in mind of, and I, I think this is like, maybe this is why I really like Tsukamoto because he's always just got it like, he's just always runs just at kind of a different speed to everyone else. Um, he talks about the cosmos and it, it reminds me a lot of, you know, kind of what you might call cosmological humanist films. Uh, I don't know if there's a better term for it, but films like Nostalgia for the Light or Malik's The Tree of Life or um, Anoka Savichikornpong's uh, Mundane History, which I think is one of the one of my favorite films of like the 2000s, one I discovered much later than this one, but it came like four years or five years after this. Um, but films are basically kind of ally, you kind of contextualize human experience in the the vastness of the galaxy, where it would seem like we mean the least, but tries to to kind of find some kind of a pattern or a reasoning to, you know, kind of make everything. You know, we're all kind of connected. There's some kind of a uh, some kind of a connective tissue to it all. Um, and Tsukamoto is kind of doing the same thing, but rather than looking out to space, he's literally looking into the cells and the, the membranes and tissues of the human body. Um, and also, I, I was thinking about this because no one talks about this movie. I, you know, in all my years of talking about movies and loving this film, I don't think I've ever encountered another <laughs> person talking about this film, frankly. Um, and it, it kind of occurred to me, it's like, do, you know, have, do, have people seen this movie and they just don't like it? And, you know, I started to think, like, invent critiques of the film. 
and even even in doing that i kind of came up with like you could say this is kind of like tsukamoto's manic pixie dream girl film <laughs> which was hugely popular in the early 2000s they were all over the damn place um but of course with the tsukamoto twist the manic pixie dream girl in this film is deceased and our our man is is basically he's this girl is providing him with meaning to his life through her basically through her sacrifice by dying um if I were to give an incredibly cynical reading of the film, I don't think it really holds up to that because uh, you know unusually for this film, I think you could gender swap everyone in this film like flip it around and make it about a woman you know dissecting her boyfriend. I don't think you would have to change a detail in the script there's no you know it's it's clearly not a film about gender it's a film just about humans just bear down so but like there's these kind of elements to it i was like even thinking of that no it's it's still to me it holds up as just a really touching film about fragility of life and kind of how we're never gonna have the best answers for what you know to keep us going um and then of course i think it's bears mentioning you sean you've talked about textures and you know kind of natural imagery this is really we, we talked in kotoko last last episode about you know he, he went to okinawa which is a kind of like subtropical environment in japan and it's not built up it's not tokyo it's not a megalopolis or whatever uh you know it's beaches and sand and jungle um this is the first film that he went there with and there's these sequences with the girlfriend these kind of an imagined past or maybe memory and authorship kind of mixing and um, but there's a sensuality to those sequences a kind of a you know this this to me feels like a completely different um Tsukamoto to anything he's made prior and it's just within reason maybe Kotoko but really not much to anything after that either um of kind of bringing the the human body to the foreground without some kind of a you know without metal without steel mm -hmm. um there's just this kind of sensuousness and uh warmth and vibrancy that's really um yeah like there's nothing else like that in this film and it's it's almost like you know when ozu in late spring has the camera track while uh setsukahara is cycling on her bicycle and it's this incredible you know the camera moves it's jarring that didn't happen a lot in that era of ozu cinema so it's like you really notice the effect it's kind of really uplifting and enervating it's similar here that it's kind of like this this just skin and a human being moving and being in her body and i mean her movements obviously counterpoint she's a dancer and the the actress plays it as a ballet dancer by trade i think this is her sole film credit so she was hired as a dancer to do that and um, of course counterpoints with the fact that for much of the film she exists as a kind of like a cadaver as, as a drained you know lifeless entity and um, you know yeah there's, there's this incredible counterpoint and balance between that i think is is kind of really striking um but yeah I, you know i just this film it, it's hard for me i feel to look at this objectively this just for whatever is one of those films that like passes through my critical faculties and just hits me like bam in the pleasure center i'm like this is very much my thing yeah i was gonna say can you just come clean and say whether you like it or not <laughs> it's okay it's pretty good jake what did you think um i like it too um uh, this is uh before we started this this was the only other um Sukamoto film I had seen um and I think I was disappointed I saw it like I don't know 15 years ago for the first time and I think I was disappointed because I had got the um it was released on the Tartan Asian Extreme DVD and I I think I had known the premise going in as a, a guy who had encountered his his lover's um 
body that he's now dissecting. And maybe I, I guess I was just expecting something more extreme. I thought, uh, <laughs> I, you know, give it to credit to Sukamoto. He doesn't, he doesn't like fuck the body or anything like that. Um, but watching it now, it really kind of walloped me as a, a like a film as um, as a way of, uh, of processing like a grief of somebody that you don't even remember, but they were uh, truly a, a complete. They completed your life, and mm-hmm. um, I think there's something really kind of devastating about it especially the ending where he's like holding on to her box and um and and just the this person who like really gave him meaning is gone and um but yeah it's uh like you know we we mentioned like it's forest and it's sand but it's also very much clinical and there's a lot of sequences set in the uh, the dissecting room and uh the editing especially like there's this brief montage where it's just going through the like spanning time in there of and it's set to like the rhythm of all the students like unwrapping the tablecloth to reveal their bodies and it just gets quicker and quicker and quicker and um this is also one of our few films that we were watching where uh Tsukamoto um I don't even recall if he's in this movie um he's not but yeah you know, he's, he's no not, starring yeah, role a different lead yeah um and like Jack like you said uh the lead uh Asano um he's like the he is like the most famous actor in Japan. And I think the film is anchored by his very bizarrely stoic performance and his awesome haircut. Yeah. Yeah. And his, he just, he just gets gradually more unkempt and his, his lab coat is just more and more yellowing as, as the, the weeks pass. But um, yeah, and there's these brief, like bizarre, but interesting moments of him. He'll just stop and look in a mirror and it's like him, looking to really I'd, I'd recognize himself and he just like he just can't do it but yeah this is excellent there's a uh, last thing i want to say about this is that it reminded me because i just rewatched um this movie i'm about to mention uh within the last like month or so um but it, it recalled inception to me just on a conceptual level um it reminded me of why i find inception so frustrating which is that um, you get these moments between Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Marion Cotillard um, that he's trying to recover or revisit or whatever. They just it just envelopes his life, um, and Nolan doesn't really let that breathe. Like maybe he doesn't have enough of a hold, or he doesn't trust uh, enough, or he's just not interested in that emotional um, experience to let that be a bigger part of that movie, at least to my taste. Uh, and watching this, it really captured what I want out of that type of experience. Like there's that scene where um, the, the the two are sharing a moment on the beach, I think, and she says something about like how she didn't want to die. And it's just like, it's it's really emotional moment. And um, that that... I don't know what what else to draw from that, but it it really is. If you watch Inception, you say like, "I really like these parts of it," then you should watch Vital because it, that's the entire thing. Yeah, there's a tremendous control throughout this film. Um, like, I one of the scenes that really struck me in it is there's when they're cleaning down. They've they've packed up the bodies. They put them in their their coffins, and they the, all the medical students are kind of like hosing down the room. And kind of like goofing off and like spraying each other with the hose that they have. And it's like this, you know, kind of silly sequence. 
Um, and it's kind of shot in a way that Asano is just in his own world. The main character is kind of, he's not participating with them. And I, I do, it's not like, a, it doesn't carry a feeling like that he's condemning these other students for not having the same reverence that he had for the moment because of this very specific connection he had to his cadaver. Um, but, you know, it kind of like, it, it just feels like these small moments. It, like, this is very much a film of small moments, I think, and digging deeper and deeper and kind of becoming more attuned to those small moments. And, so, you know, it literalized, I guess, through the dissection process. And at a certain point, Asano takes off his gloves so that he can feel, you know, what you're not supposed to do as a, you know, when you're a medical student. But he takes off his gloves to, you know, feel the body, to, you know, become even more careful with kind of moving through the layers and kind of digging deeper and deeper all the while searching for yeah his memory of this this woman but also of himself of what it means you know um and also uh, there's this and thing we didn't mention is there's another female student in the film who is yeah. um who's her kind of asano's competitor but she oddly doesn't have a stomach for dissection she's an excellent student but she she is feels ill throughout this but she slept with a prophet with a professor who then commits suicide and um, because he because she dumps him um and then she enters a sexual relationship with asano and asano's character has a um they, they there's a lot of like autoerotic asphyxiation in this film or not autoerotic actually they they choke each other which is kind of an unusual you know in another film it would seem very kinky and kind of like bizarre but here it feels more like kind of an effort to assert a control and a trust between mm -hmm. people sort of a you know there, there's it seems like a very i mean Tsukamoto is not known for his subtlety like even vitalized it's not a subtle film um so i think it's a very quick way of establishing that these people are searching for something in their relationships or something they're not quite able to grasp um but yeah i think it's just it's to me it's just a tremendous film um and sadly i think like there's other Tsukamoto films I really like, but there's nothing else like Vital, and I I do wonder as he gets older, maybe will he return to this kind of format? I you know, I kind of hope so. I kind of hope there's something else in this vein coming, but so far, eh, not really. Yeah, I I would say this feels to me like him finding his voice in a way that I I wouldn't necessarily say about the earlier works that I've seen, which is this doesn't feel like. Uh, pastiche of influence at all I, there is a point in the film where i i was on a cronenberg tract but this diverges from that substantially it's a far more spiritual and contemplative yeah film. strangely enough strangely enough one of the the main reference points and i do wonder if he'd seen it is um Versatakul's blissfully yours which came out two years prior to this and there's uh that film has an extended sequence of two lovers in a jungle kind of lying together uh you know in the jungle post-sex and just kind of talking about time and existence and um i do wonder if that's kind of a you know it's not a, a connection i would never have connected Tsukamoto and Yosotaku as, as directors you know being the slow and the quick um but there there's certain framing towards the end uh with Asano's character lying in the in the jungle with his girlfriend who then disappears and he's lying alone and the framing and the body position he's actually very of a very kind of uh what we say reminiscent of of blissfully yours and i i that was kind of a shock to me i i had only seen that film many years later i would did not see that around the same time um so yeah it's it's this just feels different <laughs> very very different uh yeah yeah I, I would agree and i think 
this is this is my favorite of the films that I've seen. Uh, I think it's a, a pretty special film, and I yeah I I don't know. I it does kind of purposefully unmoor you as a viewer quite a bit. It, it's something that would take several viewings to really fully parse. I feel like um, it, it's just that the nature of memory in the film uh, versus whatever is occurring between him and his his deceased girlfriend because it is it's unclear at every turn you know she's described as never dancing by her parents and most of what is clearly portrayed as memory is involving this sort of asphyxiation play it doesn't seem like this sort of warm relationship that that it becomes in his in his dreams and you wonder what the nature of their relationship actually is, and if it's even important to the, to the film. For me, it's just a pretty pretty profound treatise on the nature of grief and memory, and it's, uh, it's a great film. Yeah, I'd seek it out. All right. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, uh, well, we might as well keep trucking, right? We, are, uh, we also covered his... Pretty much his most recent film, right? Uh, looks like he's got something coming out this year, or maybe it's draft this year. But uh, Killing from 2018. This is another uh, pretty uh, divergent film from his catalog, as I know it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Well, I'll, uh, just to kind of talk about the plot quickly, it's a samurai movie, and uh, it's about uh, this ronin uh, who is being scouted by uh this uh elderly samurai i guess and um to to go fight it's during the the i believe it's the dawn of the it's the edo period and if that's where you're right right and um uh but he has this good friend and they kind of train together and his good friend isn't quite uh up to the same speed as him but he's a farmer so it's he's not a samurai by trade and his friend the farmer also has a wife and the wife and the main character samurai seem to have a little something going on um but yeah so this this elderly samurai comes to scout them and and uh things go awry um but uh this just on a sort of superficial level um Obviously, it's a like I was saying before. We get these different levels of uh, Sukumoto between these three movies. This one is very genre uh, forward and and different in in it being a samurai film, but it still has a lot of the same uh, landscape textures that we get from Vital. Just a little different, but um, you know the uh, the the foliage is is a big part of this movie in a, in a really cool way, um, and mm-hmm. it's it's interesting just to see how especially having watched um, a fair amount of samurai movies in the last uh, year or so, whatever, like getting used to a certain type of uh, movement and, and choreography and just to watch Tsukamoto kind of not care at all about a certain classic style of that and shoot it the same exact way that he would shoot somebody in Tokyo, um, you know, chasing after uh, these criminals or whatever. Yeah, um, it's killing. It. This is of the, of all the films we discussed. This is I had never seen this film before, and it's his most recently released film as of recording of this. Um, and it's interesting because after Vital, he vitally shot on thirty five mil, and then after that, he pretty much switched to digital, and he became a very 
staunch advocate for digital cinematography. Um, he made a short film the next year after Vital called Haze, which is shot in like standard definition, like consumer grade digital, which seemed to be very much in vogue around the same time. You know, I think like a year later, David Lynch would make Inland Empire with the same kind of tech. Um, kind of an interesting uh, crossover development where a lot of filmmakers were finding that digital offered them possibilities and versatility that film just literally couldn't and also cost saving which for Tsukamoto was certainly uh you know useful considering he's pretty much one guy who runs the factory I think I think he has like there's one other permanent employee in his film company who does the accounts and then he's <laughs> everything else so and you know brings on whenever he's making something shop. he brings people on Basically, yeah. Except that his dad kicked him out when he set it up. So <laughs> when he quit his when he quit his marketing job to become a filmmaker, his dad kicked him out of the house. And not even mom and pop, just just Shinya hanging out. But um, so he he started making digital films after this. And um, I don't know the Nightmare Detective films, the like two studio films he made somewhere in the middle. I don't know what they were shot on. I've actually not seen those, but I plan to rectify that soon. But um, it is interesting, as Sean says, like it, it kind of. It's very much feels like a Tsukamoto film. It's still much slower than his earlier work, but it's shot digitally, so it's very interesting close-ups. It's very versatile in the way that it kind of moves between light and dark. Um, and the film itself is is interesting because it, it is very genre-centric and has a lot of kind of your tropes of the genre in terms of like different classes and ex of experience and cynicism within Samurai. Um it's interesting though, because I mean, it opens with forging a sword, and which kind of draws us right back to Tetsuo and metal and kind of man's relationship with metal. It's almost like, weirdly enough, even though this is set in probably the mid eighteen hundreds, I believe is around when it would have been set. Um, it's kind of like an industrial movie in that sense. In the industry of the time, metalworking swords were one of the the huge uh, products that were being produced. Um, but the film itself then. Uh, asks a question about the use of the sword, what the sword does to the person, or what the person will allow the sword to do to them. Because this, it's a film, uh, surprise, surprise, killing is a film about killing. Um, and it's got kind of like a strong vibe. I was reminded a lot of Unforgiven, uh, the Clint Eastwood mm -hmm. revisionist Western, in terms of it's a film basically about once you... Basically, once you open open the the kind of the the floodgate, you can't shut it again. Uh, once once you make the the decision, you're in it, right. um, and it's kind of a you know it, it's yeah it, it's an interesting film that way in that it seal it doesn't feel anything like Tetsuo, it doesn't look anything like Tetsuo. It's pretty faithful to its period setting, but with that sword forging kind of kind of threads through so yeah it's and i think it's a, it's an interesting it's a really grim film i will say it's a oh, yeah. it's I, this one comes in like 79 minutes this is actually like uh, i think just around the same length as tetsuo but it, it's like a death march film <laughs> frankly it kind of reminds me actually of fires in the plane the film he made just prior to this um which if anyone's seen has been adapted film before by like connie chikawa and it's it's basically about World War Two and cannibalism, it's really grim. This is like the samurai equivalent in a sense. It's a film about killing and just kind of, uh, I guess, just sort of like uh, losing yourself in something through uh, social or technological pressures. I guess you could discuss that within the relation of the film. Um, and just yeah, the, our main character really is a he's a skilled samurai, but he he doesn't want to be violent. He specifically 
wants to you know he trains and everything but he doesn't want to kill anyone and there a cost comes of that and then eventually he's driven that he has to and at that point we we wonder what his value system you know what remains and what was what was moral to begin with so yeah it, it's certainly an interesting piece and certainly a kind of a more mature piece again this this is more of a yeah, this this is not a film that Tsukamoto would have made in the 90s for sure yeah the opening is very interesting in how it's it's uh how it's a Tsukamoto film in this particular context because his first role is the metal fetishist in Tetsuo and here the crafting of the samurai sword he very much fetishizes that because we we get like the the clanking of the hammer and like the the sizzle of the water on the blade it's very I, the first note i wrote down is that this is like samurai sword porn um and we really just admire the the craft um but i, I thought this film was uh, fantastic and i think you know around finishing out our sukamoto um uh run this is probably the strongest grouping of films that we had I think the the scene that really hooked me in was um, when our two young samurai go out into the woods because they hear rumor of a duel happening, and it's uh, Sukamoto's character uh, fighting a guy who also looks like a, a classically dressed ronin, and uh, we only see one swipe of Sukamoto's sword, and then it's revealed that he basically nearly severs off the other guy's ring and pinky finger from his hand. Uh, and then we don't even see the rest of the fight. Our our, our hero, young hero, decides, oh, it's over. We don't. We have already determined a victor, so we don't even see the rest of it play out. But um, I don't know. What did you guys think of that? That like that moment? It's a great deliver of like a shock, yeah. gore. See, like yeah, it's it's and again, kind of a a, a kind of illustration of you know pain. Uh, you know, it's it's like you know that terrible paper cut you've given yourself once that just hurts so much it's like amp that up to 12 um it's you know like most samurai battle yeah most samurai battles are kind of like you know one swish and they're dead uh this film is a this film is about bleeding um more Mm. than anything else (laughs) it's it's a you know that's kind of and i mean specifically at one point when the when sukamoto plays the elderly samurai and he uh, attacks some outlaws and leaves them bleeding and he you know kind of tells them you know take this last few minutes to reflect on your lives and you know he's not going to finish them <laughs> that's off that's very unforgiven like it is it, it, and it kind of points towards a, a cruelty in that character and um, it's my understanding i mean i'm not uh, fully on i'm not a, a scholar of japanese history by any means but i like my understanding of this period is this was weird kind of like a, a fairly peaceful period in japan because i think this is under the tokugawa uh, shogunate who pretty much ran the entire nation so there weren't you know it was it was after the i think it was after the battling clans era or whatever where there was basically warlords fighting constantly i believe uh, tokugawa won uh, if my collection is probably a Japanese history person somewhere gnashing their teeth, apologies. <laughs> but it's my understanding that this was a relatively peaceful period in Japanese history. Mm-hmm. But um, the social structure still acknowledged farmers and samurai and merchants and lords. You know, there was there was a caste system effectively in place and samurai were m- more important than farmers. They were a higher breed and you couldn't change. One of the things in Japanese system is you can't change class uh, if you were born a farmer you're forever a farmer if you're born a samurai it doesn't matter how poor and miserable and down on your look you get you are still a samurai you're still better than a farmer um, 
but of course if there's there's no battles going on if there's one government and the whole the whole country is generally at peace then samurai are basically useless uh, they have nothing to do but they're still better than farmers who produce food so there's kind of a, a vision within the film i guess of kind of a dysfunctional society um that bleeds through that the, the samurai are, exist to kill and they train and they they refine their skills to kill in a society that doesn't need anyone killed currently maybe um and so they're looking for antagonism and i, and I guess the, the main uh difference between our two heroes the younger samurai has uh, renounced violence he doesn't want to be violent he seems to understand that if you uh, there's an outlaw camp he's an outlaw group uh kind of show up with the villagers the samurai is working with for the time being and he the villagers are scared of the outlaws and think they're going to cause trouble um and they are they're a little aggressive they're a little bawdy and annoying and they do beat up his his farm boyfriend but they beat him up for pretending to be a samurai or for getting ideas above a station so they're not really they don't commit what would be socially considered a grand crime and they don't kill him they they beat the crap out of him so it's not exactly like blameless but in a rough and tumble society we might say that they didn't really they didn't really break any major laws by doing that um and so you know the samurai kind of wants to let it slide he wants to like he realizes that if he instigates violence against them he firstly he doesn't really have due cause to do it and secondly it's probably going to make everything worse and then the other samurai decides and the other samurai is a uh, sukamoto samurai it seems progressive in that he wins he wants to take this farm boy on because he as he says he doesn't hire based on on class he hires based on skill and he sees skill in this boy you know he could be useful although cynically we might argue he may you know he's sword fodder like that might be what he we don't know exactly what this guy's plan is he wants to go to Edo Ed, uh, and fight i believe um if we don't know who um i don't know what fighting is occurring here it's never really clarified in the film um mm -hmm. so you know but it's just so he's you know does he really see talent in this kid or does he just see another body he can throw into a battle and maybe distract something you know it's it's difficult to tell but he, you know, it's kind of progressive he would bring that boy in, but then he attacks the outlaws because they attacked him and opens up a can of worms and everything, spoiler alert, everything goes very badly. Uh, once, you know, once blood is spilled, the whole thing basically goes out of control. It's, it becomes terrible, and then the two samurai turn on each other because their own value systems have clashed. There's, and that's, that's it. There's all this, this, this violence and stuff, but there's... Um... I should mention that there is uh, like an incredibly tender uh, moment or two between the uh, Ronan and his friend's wife where um, they're like uh, communicating and like touching between like uh, through a fence. Um, just an incredible scene that I, I won't ruin, but um, it's... Uh, and still a barrier between them. Yeah, yeah it's... it's not something that I really like saw saw coming, and um, actually for a while I thought that the movie was going to be sort of like because the, because he got sick and, and the farmer was being scouted. I thought that he was going to go off and it was going to be um, more of a uh, sister to Gemini in that way, but um, less cruel. Uh, which I also would have enjoyed that film as well, but. So that tender moment you're talking about is when he's jacking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When he's beating off yeah. furiously. Yeah, and then he gets the, yeah, the, the, this he is, gets the come stuck on his uh, ear, and then she like comes over and 
Uh, <laughs> so th- this movie does definitely enter the catalog of uh, Jack and Samurais, which is uh, <laughs> not too many, not too many films I can think of. Yeah, there's something about Jiro Samon. <laughs> then there, there's that scene with, uh, yeah, like you say, Sean, between the the two touching the hand through the fence. But there's again a film of sublimated feelings there's no consummation of anything there's a barrier constantly between everyone in this and eventually the barrier becomes swords um yeah it, it's this is a, a curious film um what if- it's it's interesting to see a, a digit you know it's digitally shot mm-hmm. it's kind of got that interesting kind of pacing and stuff to it and a kind of very um I guess lush color palette. I think I think like one of the things I kind of like about Tsukamoto is once he goes into nature, he really revels in it. Yeah. Um, so his cities are utterly sterile, and his his jungles and countryside are absolutely you know wonderful scenes of of kind of nature of natural growth and glory. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I think this is one that definitely I would revisit, and I think is going to grow in my estimation. And since seventy nine minutes, it revisiting is yeah. very easy. Other than the fact that it's kind of a death march, but eh, sometimes you're in the mood for that. What, what did you think of it, Myros? Uh I thought it was excellent. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this, from the scene Jake highlighted to the scenes, it, just the nature of the handheld cinematography and everything about it feels like it's subverting sort of western expectation of samurai and this nature this notion of of honor above all else it's it highlights the humanity in these people and the fact that killing is uh abhorrent and a destructive force that quite literally forges one in in a way that is not necessarily useful to society and that that's a message that is just as relevant today and uh it feels it, it it's a film that i i was surprised by how much i enjoyed honestly i i was kind of expecting it to be a little dry you know you're you're expecting them to head off to fight halfway through the movie and you're like eh, well this is going to get less interesting but it it's doing its own thing that's for sure and i i really appreciated it i thought it was uh very interesting and uh compelling film I definitely would recommend as a weird Weird factoid as you talk about um, Western films. Ironically, for uh, one of the lead actors, Sosuke Gamatsu, who plays the, the younger samurai, his first feature film role was in The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise movie. So, <laughs> nice. night and day there. I have to watch that again, actually. I wonder how it holds up. I'm sure it's great. The Zwick Pod, coming next week. The Zwick Pod. <laughs> At the request of absolutely no one. <laughs> sure, sure. Donate to our Patreon to ask us to not record the Zwick pod. <laughs> uh, is there anything else in the killing? Uh, anyone have any wrapping thoughts or should we just move on? Um, the scene in the cave is great too. We didn't, There's not much bloodshed spilled in this movie, but when it happens, it's fast and fierce. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that excellent quote where the he basically kills the last leader of these bandits and the guy's asking for a quick death. But the elder samurai says, no, you, you, you'll you bleed to death, so reflect on your life. And he just leaves him there. Just, just fucking phenomenal. It has that strange thing in the last violent sequence of the film between the two samurai where mm-hmm. it has almost this, like, kill Bill blood spray uh, that seems to be just envisioned by the protagonist. Uh, the, the killing blow has not yet even been struck. It's just 
it's almost how he envisions that it's yeah. going to appear when it when it occurs, and then it's immediately followed by just this almost bloodless disembowelment that happens moments later. It's very interesting. Yeah, I don't have any uh, uh, closing thoughts on the killing, but just on this exercise as a whole, um, I uh, found it really rewarding. Just to, as I've mentioned along the way somebody who i i wouldn't have jumped to like i didn't buy the box set because I, I wasn't really sure if it was going to be my type of thing and and i found a lot to uh i mean it helped to talk about it um with you guys and instead of just like experience it in a vacuum so hopefully people listening experience it and are able to uh have that experience with the podcast yeah, similarly for me, I mean, I've only jumped in just now, but uh, already uh, these are films. As someone who it doesn't have a great tolerance for what he's doing with the uh, Tetsuo films, uh, th this is a different beast, and, and you can really see how he's evolved as a filmmaker and is not uh, it's not a one-trick pony, that's for sure. It's, it's, it's helpful to contextualize a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I think also I... You know, I, I don't. I think we're all guilty of this, but I tend to buy things and then they just sit on a shelf for weeks, Speak if not for yourself. months, waiting for me to made it. Okay, sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but um, I I'm really happy how we did this because it you know it it made me it forced me to sit down and watch something that I had purchased, and this is a this is a very lovingly crafted set from Arrow, and uh, this the standalone Gemini release from uh, Mondo Macabre is also uh, a worthy addition to anyone's uh, collection. Um, and, uh, Adam, I would actually recommend you seek out Gemini as well. Um, that one's a, that's an excellent film. Beautiful movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It looks great. You won't have to twist my arm. I've, I found quite a lot to appreciate in this set of films. So, uh, it's certainly better than the last episode. We'll say that, uh, not a yeah. money plane in the bunch. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Well, Let's let's wrap this up, and we shall move on to uh, everyone's favorite segment. Uh, Patreon has demanded it, so we uh, <laughs> we will put things over. And by we, I mean you. I'm hosting. I I can bypass this entire process. So, uh, Sean, what are you putting over this evening? Uh, yeah, I just uh, I guess yesterday or the day before, I, I started to do a little run on Douglas Sirk movies. Somebody uh, you know, I've seen a few prior but kind of just wanted to get into the nitty-gritty and and um, watch them and they're very uh easy to watch one after another unlike sukimoto you know it's it's uh, a lot um more pleasant um most of the time but um one of the big surprises was a movie called uh has anybody seen my gal which is um a 1950s movie and just a very uh very classic uh, American movie uh, set during the depression uh, about money ruining um, people's lives uh, but it's delightful and it's again uh, a movie that I don't know why I hadn't heard of it before like this just seems to fit in with like a lot of like the stuff that Vincent Minnelli was doing at the time um, where just like a crowd pleaser you could watch it with your family like it it culminates it at christmas time like this this should be a seasonal hit and uh for some reason it's it's not uh talked about so has anybody seen my gal uh really really beautiful movie if you're in the mood for that type of american classic uh there you are uh i'm gonna switch things up just a little bit and we're gonna throw in some social media contact right here while we do the putovers sean where can people find you online if they want to 
Uh, Reach out. Letterboxd, uh, Sean Glynis. There you are. And that's G-L-I-N-I-S. Uh, Jake, what are you going to put over this week? Yeah, I've only seen a, a couple of Douglas Sirk movies, but I've loved what I've seen. Um, if you're looking for something similar to Douglas Sirk, though, I would recommend, highly recommend this um, TV series I just finished. Um, it's called, uh, it's Gareth Evans' uh, Gangs of London, um, which is, uh, the, uh, Gareth Evans, as you all know, is the director of The Raid. He uh, produced this, um, uh, I hope it's not a limited series. I think there's another season coming soon-ish, if the pandemic allows it. But um, yeah, it's a, a nine episode series uh, taking place in the underbelly of uh, London's notorious uh, gang lands. Um, and uh, if you know anything about Gareth Evans, then you know that there are going to be some awesomely violent set pieces in the episodes. And they're worth seeing uh, alone just for that. Um, and if you have any means of acquiring these episodes, I would recommend doing so because the, uh, the series has so far only broadcast in the UK and AMC is going to be um, playing, airing it in the U.S. And uh, there's some some pretty heavy, uh, violent content in there that might very well be neutered by the time it reaches the states. But um, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic um, showcase for his interests in uh, extremely violent cinema, as it were. Um, one episode in particular is a, a siege episode that's worthy of all the praise of. Uh, assault on Precinct 13. So, yeah, Gangs of London, just like a Douglas Sirk movie uh, with more explosions. I can second that. It's it's excellent. Uh, it's a very, very entertaining piece of television. Uh, R.I.P. Cinemax as a uh, provider of quality television. Uh, sad to hear they're out of the game. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get mm-hmm. butchered by AMC. Jake, where are the people going to find you online if they want to reach out? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd as Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. There we are. Uh, Jack, what do you got for us? Okay, uh, I'm going to put over for ease of access uh, Choi Hawk's film uh, Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, film I've been meaning to watch for years. Finally got around to watching it last week, and it is every bit as good as people say. Uh, and it's also on YouTube, which if you just want to go and see it, very easy to see, and it's the full cut. Uh, the... Uh, the film was unsurprisingly banned uh, the instant it came out in Hong Kong uh, because it's basically about some teenagers who decide planting some bombs would be really fun, um, which is kind of uh, seditious content. It is an incredibly nihilistic, grim film, um, kind of about, I guess, dead-end youth, uh, social-cultural struggles, uh, the anxieties, I guess, of, of mainland China to Hong Kong, etc. Uh, Western influencers, there's uh, a group of Americans within the film who are basically just violent interlopers. Um, extremely grim film. Uh, I really cannot uh, <laughs> emphasize how much it is that, but if you were in the, the mood for it, it is an incredibly um, kind of vivacious, edgy kind of direct piece of filmmaking it was uh Choi Hawk's I think second feature film I believe and I mean obviously he went on to become a, a kind of film factory himself he set up the film workshop which became you know a huge production wing in the 90s for Hong Kong cinema he's made many fantastic films this is very different to the films he'd become known for much more he became known for much more blockbuster commercial films this is um this is like Steven Spielberg making, you know, like Tetsuo or something like just like really 
potent, grim, nasty stuff, but really thrilling, kind of uh, provocative, interesting cinema, politically charged. And it's on YouTube. So uh, yeah, Dangerous Encounter is the first kind. Check it out if you are willing to. And Jack, where can they check you out? Um, I normally hang out on Twitter at RealJackEason. That's real J-A-C-K-E-A-S-O-N. I have a letterbox too, but I don't really post anything and I don't even remember what my username is. But you might be able to find me there too. Who knows? All right. Well, you won't find me on Twitter. And uh, contrary to popular belief, I'm also not constantly refreshing Optimism Vaccine's email address. But that (laughs) is mainly because it's 99.9% uh, junk mail. Uh, you can change that, though. Uh, the listeners out there, you can change that. You could you could change my habits, and you can uh, get rid of this junk mail in our inbox by balancing the proportion out. We are uh, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at optimismvaccine. Uh, more importantly, I suppose, is that we are very recently a Patreon-supported podcast uh look for optimism vaccine uh patreon is gonna be a link in the description as well uh doesn't take much and you can help us create more and more content and uh we certainly do appreciate whatever you have to offer beyond that uh why not go to itunes and write us up a review i'm sure we'll have a link to that as well in the description uh five star reviews gonna make us a lot more visible and that is just uh, the biggest help you can give us as a podcast um We also recently split our second podcast that Steve and I do, Caustic Content, to its own feed. Uh, So give that one a five-star review, too. Why not? It's a baby feed. We have about uh, 10 subscribers. So uh, check that one out, too. Maybe you've heard the podcast on this feed or maybe not. But either way, check it out. It's a fun time. Uh, This has been a very professional endeavor. I kept it under uh, 80 minutes, nice and brisk. And uh, I'm going to give... Like a Tsukamoto film. Exactly. How fitting. I'm going to give the last word to you, Jake. What do you got for me? Uh, rest in peace, Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley died? Damn. He did. <laughs>